Today on Something You Should Know, what's the best seat on an airplane? Apparently, it's in row 49. Then, the myths and science of weight loss and why it's so hard to keep weight off. Well, certainly one factor is everywhere we go these days, there is food. Um, also, we all recognize that portions are larger. Studies show that we tend to eat what's in front of us. So if we serve a giant portion at a restaurant, we're more likely to eat it. Also, how your cell phone could save your life if you set it upright. And how humans have changed and redefined nature. There is really a tendency to think of us as separate from nature. Really, the only, the only species that we've really messed with, for example, might be the things we domesticated, like corn and cats and dogs and stuff like that. But in fact, our fingerprint is on everything that's out there. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works? And so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. It does seem that more and more people are flying again. I know some people still don't want to fly, but it does seem that more and more people are getting on airplanes. And with the holidays coming up, even more people will be flying. And maybe you've wondered, what's the best seat to choose on a commercial airliner? Well, a flight attendant named Sandra Jeannie Kwan, who has 7 million social media followers, put out a video explaining her choice based on her experience as a flight attendant. And her favorite seats are not the ones you might think. They're not the ones in the emergency exit aisle with all the extra legroom. She says you want an aisle seat about halfway through the back section of the airplane. So on a standard flight with 52 rows, the best seats would be the aisle seats of row 49. One reason for getting a seat towards the back of the plane is because the plane tends to fill up from front to back, meaning you're more likely to get a row to yourself if you're towards the back of the plane. But you don't want to go much farther back than row 49 because now you're getting a little too close to the bathrooms. And since meals are served from front to back on an airplane, if they serve meals, the farther back you go, the more likely they are to run out of your choice of meals. And that is something you should know. It seems just about everybody wishes they could lose 5 pounds or 10 pounds or more. Body weight is a preoccupation for a lot of people. I mean, have you ever passed your reflection in a mirror or a window and maybe sucked in your stomach, wish you wore a size or two smaller, or maybe you dream someday of going back to the weight you were several years ago? And despite all the diets and programs that supposedly make it so simple to lose weight, it is not so simple. It's hard for humans to lose weight, and in fact, it seems quite easy to gain it. A lot of us weigh more than we should, and I suspect most of us weigh more than we wish we did. But in order to lose weight, we have to understand what really works and what doesn't. 
what science has proven will work as opposed to the myths, fad diets, and old wives' tales about how to lose weight. And here to bust some myths and explain the science is Robert Davis. He's an award-winning health journalist who's written three books on health and now has a fourth book out called Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat. Hey, Robert, welcome. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thank you, Mike. Nice to talk to you. Supposedly, we know a lot about health and diet and metabolism and calories and exercise. We know all that we know that you would think this problem of weight loss would be better or would be getting better. But in fact, it's getting worse. People are getting heavier and heavier. So what's going on? Weight loss generates a lot of profits for a lot of people. By one estimate, the weight loss industry is worth more than $60 billion annually in the U.S. And there are lots of players in this industry who stand to profit from misleading information. People who push particular diets, people who say, oh, this is the only diet, this is the best diet. Uh, people who, uh, food companies that sell us foods that they're supposedly weight friendly. Gyms that tell us join and lose 30 pounds in 30 days. So the list goes on of people who are trying to push ideas that are not only misleading us, but in some cases making the problem worse. Well, what do you think is the reason? And there may be several, but 50, 60 years ago, we didn't have the problem we have now with obesity. People can't have just lost their willpower. So what's happened? Well, certainly one factor is the ubiquity of food. I like to say whether we go to Office Depot or Home Depot, there's food there. Uh, whether we go to our offices or whether we go to the airport, there's food. So I think that's certainly something that's changed over the years is there's more food at more places uh, waiting there, beckoning us, tempting us. Um, also, we all recognize that portions are larger. So we dine out more and we get larger portions at restaurants. And studies show that we tend to eat what's in front of us. So if we're served a giant portion at a restaurant, we're more likely to eat it. And then uh, there's the food industry. The food industry continues to pump out more and more highly processed foods, uh, foods that are highly palatable. And these are foods that research is associated with weight gain. Um, so I think all those things certainly play, play a role. And then, as I mentioned earlier, just the proliferation of bad advice. Um, I think these, uh, these diets and other approaches that we're told to follow that don't work, I think those have made the problem worse as well. So let's start with breakfast, because... A lot of people have heard the saying, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But a lot of people don't eat breakfast, and many people who do eat breakfast eat a very sweet, donut-y, waffly breakfast. So what about breakfast? Yeah, well, that's been something that's been uh, debated a long time. And many people do say breakfast is the most important meal of the day, including for weight loss. And there's studies that actually show that people who eat breakfast are less likely to put on weight, less likely to be obese. The problem with those studies is they just show associations, not cause and effect. And if you look at studies that actually can show cause and effect, so-called clinical trials, what they suggest is there is not necessarily a relationship between eating breakfast and weight. So people who eat breakfast are not necessarily more or less likely to gain weight or to be overweight. So the bottom line there is you should do what's right for you. So if you, you're not hungry in the morning and you don't want breakfast, don't eat. Wait until you're hungry. If on the other hand, like me, I'm a breakfast eater and I have to eat first thing in the morning, eat, but eat something sensible. Eat a breakfast that is going to be not full of donuts and pastries, but that's going to have healthful foods and that are going to fill you up and sustain you. Generally, I think when people decide that they need to lose weight, they start by looking at calories. They count calories they, and they look at how many they take in and how many they burn and maybe they'll walk more after dinner because that'll burn more calories. What about that theory? Yeah, that's often the sort of the basis of the, of the advice we get, right? You should eat less and move more, eat fewer calories and move more. And sometimes that's abbreviated as ELMM. And I like to say for many people, Elm Street is a dead end. Uh, they, they do that and they find it doesn't work. Now, one reason when it comes to calorie counting is that it's very hard to count calories precisely. You know, we see those big, bold numbers on the food packages that the food has 273 calories. The problem is those numbers are not exact. They can be off under law by as much as 20% and often what we see is an undercount. 
So number one, we often don't know how many calories we're eating with any precision. Number two, it's hard to know how many calories you're actually burning. You know, there are apps, you can, there are online calculators, but it's very hard to know how many calories you're actually burning because it varies from person to person and it depends on a number of factors. So if you're not sure how many calories with any precision you're taking in, you're not really sure how many you're burning or need to burn to be in calorie deficit, it's a very hard thing to do precisely. Um, and so on top of that, when you look only at calories, which many of us are told to do, you may end up choosing foods that are not necessarily optimal for long-term weight control because you, you may end up eating candy or fudge bars or other foods that are, that are maybe lower in calories, but that are not necessarily going to fill you up and curb hunger. So that's something else. So what matters is not only the number of calories, but also the quality of those foods and the effect they have on fullness. And what you said about, you know, people really are different, that you and I could, could do the same things all day long, and one of us could burn a lot more calories or end up with a, a calorie deficit or, or surplus much different than the other. Exactly. And we all know those people we, we don't like who can eat whatever they want and they never gain an ounce. And there are studies, studies of twins that show that genetics can play a large role and how our bodies respond to the calories we eat. Just as you say, uh, people, some people can eat a certain number of calories and gain a lot of weight. Other people, the study suggests, won't gain as much weight. And, and conversely with weight loss. So that certainly plays a role. Something else that is interesting to me is there's emerging evidence about the microbes in our guts, the so-called microbiome. And this is, this is new research that's just emerging, but it's very interesting. And what this research suggests is that people have different mixes of microbes in their guts. And that mix of microbes can, can help determine how many of the calories that we consume are actually absorbed. And that makes a difference because if you don't absorb as many of the calories that you consume, you're going to gain less weight. And so that's a factor too that may help explain why different people gain different amounts of weight or lose different amounts of weight depending on how much they eat. Of all the myths about weight loss, what's the one that, that you find most interesting or you think people don't really understand? What's the one that stands out to you? You know, I wouldn't have said this before writing this book, but after writing this book and talking to lots of people who struggled for decades, maybe their entire lives with their weight, I would say it's that weight is entirely within your control. And if you are unable to lose weight and keep it off, it's your fault that you're not diligent enough, that you're lazy, that there's something wrong with you. And that to me is the biggest myth of all because it's so harmful. Not only does it destroy people's self-esteem and uh, and result in, in all kinds of negative emotions and, and negative, uh, you know, poor mental health. Um, but I think it can also make it harder for people to live a healthy life and to control their weight over time because often they just give up. Um, and so to me, that's perhaps the biggest myth of all. Well, th that takes us into my next question, which is there is this theory that, there is a, uh, that you have a set weight. Your weight is your weight, and you can, you can try to lower it, but eventually your body will come back to your weight. You're, you have a weight. Yes, the, the so-called set point theory. And that's the idea, as you say, that there's a range, perhaps, or a weight or a range within your, where your body wants to be. And certainly, research does show that when people cut calories, for example, or they exercise vigorously and lose weight, the body fights back because we have this built-in mechanism. Evolution has given us this gift to help protect us against starvation. And, 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 and so when we start uh, losing weight, the body thinks, uh-oh, uh, something's wrong here. We need to start pushing the weight back up. So unfortunately, or fortunately, we don't live in a society, at least in the U.S., where we have to worry about starvation for the most part and scarcity. But this mechanism uh, that, that evolution has given us, we have it's going to fight our efforts. If somebody was, based on what you know about all this research, if somebody was to ask you, okay, so I'm, I want to lose weight, but it would be nice to like kickstart this. Like what, what, is there one or two things that really help people like get on track, see some results fairly quickly that, that encourage them to keep going? Well, I would say that just about any diet will help you lose weight in the short term. Whether you wanna do a keto diet, a low fat diet, intermittent fasting, I think 
any of those approaches has been shown to help in the short term. We're talking over several months. So I think to find what you can tolerate for a certain period of time, and that can help kickstart your efforts. The real challenge, though, as we all know, is not losing weight in the short term. It's the long term because these the statistics are very depressing about the amount of weight, the number of people, the percentage of people who regain some or in many cases all or more of what they lost. So I think what's key here is whatever diet you choose in the short term, whatever works for you, to also have a plan in place that after several months you're going to transition to a long-term eating plan that you can sustain. That's what's key. And I think it's fine if you use a, one of these diets in the short term to get started and to encourage you, but I think it's unrealistic to count on any of these diets, these short-term diets, these fad diets, as a long-term solution to weight control. We are talking about the myths and science of losing weight, and my guest is Robert Davis. He's author of the book, Supersize Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Robert, often it seems that discussions around food, particularly around weight loss, is what not to do, what, what foods are bad for you, that what you need to avoid rather than what's good for you, that, that what we have to do is cut out the villains in our diet and that will help. So we had in the 1970s and 80s and into the 90s, the idea that fat is the enemy, that if you eat less fat, you'll lose weight. And so we saw a flood of low fat and no fat products in the market. And what happened, not only did people not lose weight, they gained weight, and there was an epidemic of diabetes, which is in many cases attributed to this uh, low fat craze. And so after that, we saw low carb. And then since then, we've seen people naming uh, gluten as the enemy or uh, sugar as the enemy or uh, beans as the enemy or other foods, uh, the list goes on. But the point is that weight loss is more, far more complex than a particular food or category of foods. And when this approach is taken, what it does is to divert attention away from the larger issue, which is the overall quality of our diets. Um, it's not about one food or one category of foods. It's the overall composition of your diet that matters. Um, and also it can interfere with optimal health because if certain diets, for example, a keto diet, if you do it over the long term and don't eat uh, whole, whole grains, for example, um, there can be nutrient deficiencies. And so that can be an issue. That can be a very serious side effect of some of these approaches. So that's a myth that we need to be aware of uh, when, when diet uh, pushers tell us it's all about cutting out some category of food. Certainly in any discussion about weight loss, you have to talk about exercise. But as we've talked on this podcast before, exercise is not a great way to lose weight. And, and if you think that you can, you know, eat anything you want and just exercise, it won't work if weight loss is your goal. Yeah, that's correct. And I say that as somebody who's an avid exerciser. I am a big proponent of exercise. That said, um, for all the things exercise can do, everything from lowering our risk of cancer and heart disease to improving our mood, even improving our sex lives, the one thing it can't do, ironically, is the thing that many, many, if not most people look for it to do, which is to help us lose weight. And that's a shame because um, what happens is that too often people go into an exercise program mainly because they expect it to help them lose weight. It doesn't help them lose weight, and then they stop exercising. 
And so the reasons are several. First of all, as you say, it doesn't burn a lot of calories, the kind of exercise that most of us do, which is great for our health, going for a brisk walk, taking a yoga class, going for a bike ride. Um, that's not going to burn a lot of calories. And so it's not going to make a big, big dent in our weight. And even when we do exercise vigorously, if you're one of those few people who can go to the gym every day, burn five or 600, 700 calories five days a week, which is hard to do. But if you can do that, it will result in some weight loss in the short term. But over time, your body responds, your metabolism slows down and it becomes harder and harder to lose weight. And you have to ratchet up the exercise more and more. So long term, it's not a great way to lose weight. So there are other benefits to exercise when it comes to weight. So I want to make sure that's clear. While exercise may not help you lose weight, it actually can, is important when it comes to maintaining weight loss or preventing weight gain uh, from, from starting at all. So I think that exercise is important with regard to keeping weight off. It's just not a great way to take off weight in the first place. One of the concerns I think people have and I've had it too, is that when you talk to someone like you who, who points out that, you know, this doesn't work, this is a myth, these things have proven not to be true, it doesn't help people to what to do. It's telling them what not to do, what doesn't work. But So now what do you do? So, okay, all these things are, are myths. Now what? Yeah, that's a great point. And that's, I, I definitely don't want people to be left with that message that it's hopeless and nothing works. Because what we do know, and there's good research showing that the kind of eating pattern that is optimal for good health is also optimal for maintaining a healthy weight. And so what does that mean? It means the things we often hear about, a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and beans and seeds, fish, lean poultry, a dairy, if you eat dairy, um, and that is uh, that you minimize foods that are highly processed, things like chips, candy, sweets, fries, fried foods, things like that. Now, notice I didn't say you never eat those foods. So it's not, these foods are not villains. It's not as, it's not the same as diets that say certain foods are off limits. You should never eat them. But it is to say that you should focus on eating more of the foods that are good for us, that are good for our weight, and to try to eat less of the foods that are not good for our weight. And, and it's a process. I think it's important for people to recognize that food eating habits build up over time. I know when I was growing up, I ate all these processed foods. I drank soda. I ate donuts. I ate Pop-Tarts. I ate candy a lot, potato chips. And so it was only through, over a period of years that I was able to change my eating habits. So I was able to focus more on a whole foods diet. And I think that's a very important point for people to see this as a marathon, not a sprint, to change their diets over time gradually uh, so that, and they can still enjoy foods, highly processed food, a piece of cake, ice cream, chips, but to make them occasional treats in moderation rather than everyday staples. Let's talk about diet soda, because I think people believe that diet soda is a good choice. It's a better choice than sugared sodas because it doesn't have any calories. And so therefore it must be helpful in losing weight. But what the research tells us is that's not necessarily the case. It's far more complex. There's research suggesting, some research suggests that a diet soda or diet beverages can result in weight loss, but there's plenty of other research that suggests that it has no effect and even some that it contributes to weight gain. There are different theories. One is that uh, diet drinks mess with our brains so that they cause us to expect when we drink a diet drink, our brains are expecting calories and that we don't get them um, we, our brains say, well, where are the calories? And it, uh, we get hungry and it causes us to seek out calories so that we end up eating more. That's just a theory, but it, it is one explanation as to why. There are also theories that some of certain artificial sweeteners may affect the balance of microbes in our guts. And so, uh, changing that balance again can affect, um, how we absorb calories that we consume. So that may be a factor. And it may also just be what I like to call, I'll have a large, fry a Big Mac and a Diet Coke. The idea that somehow well, we're, we're being good when it comes to diet drinks so that we can overindulge in other ways. We have license to do so because we're being virtuous. So that may play a role as well. But whatever the reason, what we do know is that diet drinks by and large do not live up to their promise of promoting weight loss. And in some cases, they may even promote weight gain. What does the science say about these supposedly these superfoods like avocados and 
certain other berries that that supposedly promote weight loss. What does the science say? Yeah, this is an this is a very alluring idea, right? Because the idea is that if we eat some uh, avocado or chili peppers or coconut oil, whatever the case may be, it'll help melt away pounds, get rid of fat. That's often what we're promised. And we see news stories trumpeting some study that tell us that some food is uh, going to help us lose weight. The problem with these studies in many cases is that they are sponsored by the industry that makes that particular food. And in many cases, they don't even measure weight loss. They measure some uh, marker uh, that's short of that, say, for example, appetite. And yet we see in these headlines that the food is some kind of miracle food. So uh, again, this is an example of a misleading idea that's often peddled to us that it's all about specific foods. I think it's the mirror image of the villain myth that if you cut out certain foods, that'll help you lose weight. The mirror image of that is that if you eat certain magical foods, it'll help you lose weight. And so the again, what's important is not whether you include a particular food, acai berries or avocado or whatever. It's the overall composition of your diet. Now, that said, these foods can be part of a weight-friendly diet. Grapefruit, which again is one of these classic superfoods for weight loss. Grapefruit can be part of a weight-friendly diet. So can avocado. So can chili pepper. So there's nothing wrong with eating these foods. It's just that they don't have magical powers to melt away pounds, and we shouldn't expect them to. I remember hearing someone say something that I thought was interesting, that as more and more people gain weight, it makes it harder to lose weight because weight gain is, is kind of contagious, that, that people in a house or people in a community tend, if they hang out together, will tend to mirror each other's weight. Yeah, and there are actually studies that suggest that in some ways weight gain can act like a virus in the sense that it can spread through communities. And that if, if people have friends or spouses or coworkers or they live in communities where people are gaining weight, they're more likely to gain weight. And that stands to reason because we tend to mirror the behaviors of those around us. And conversely, if we're surrounded by people who are concerned about their health, concerned about their weight, we're more likely to do that as well. So yes, there, there's good research showing that uh, this sort of contagion, as it's called, can take hold when it comes to weight. It does seem, too, that one really, really powerful technique to losing weight, especially if you're a snacker, is to not bring them in the house. If, if you don't have them, you can't eat them. But if you have them, you're just creating this temptation that makes it so hard. Absolutely. And I think that's a very important point. And I, and I talk about this, what I call strategic planning. And that is things that you can do like keeping tempting food out of your house to help as you anticipate potential challenges. So for me, and I know for lots of other people, if I have cookies, if I have chips, if I have junk food in my house, I'm going to eat it. I cannot resist it. So what do I do? I don't keep it in the house. So I think it's important as we think about the various challenges we have, whether it's you know, I'm in a hurry after work and I don't have time to cook. And so I end up going through the drive through or I tend to have, engage in emotional eating when I'm bored or lonely or sad. I eat certain foods. I think being aware of our tendencies uh, and preparing for those and having plans in place to deal with those things is very, very important. That's a key factor when it comes to long term weight management. Well, I find it so interesting that it, it seems almost universal you ask anybody and people say, you know, I wish I could lose five pounds, wish I could lose 10 pounds. And it's hard. It's really hard to do that. And it's good to get the truth about what works and what doesn't, what are the myths and what are the techniques that actually give people a chance to lose that weight. Robert Davis has been my guest. He is a health journalist who has written several books and his latest is called Supersize Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat. And you'll find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Mike, very much. Being the dominant species we are, we have affected nature and continue to, not just as an outside force on nature, but as part of nature. Just as things in nature affect us, we affect nature. We have for as long as we've been here. But with our human intelligence and what we can do with science, we can affect nature in a lot of ways, both good and bad. But should we? Are we messing things up by changing nature? 
Or can we impact nature in a positive way? Beth Shapiro is a biologist who has looked at how humans impact nature, and she's author of a book called Life As We Made It, How 50,000 Years of Human Innovation Refined and Redefined Nature. Hi, Beth. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, thanks for having me. So explain what you mean and maybe give some examples of how it is we impact nature. Um, I, there is really a, a, a tendency to think of us as separate from nature um, and to really think of really the only the only species that we've really messed with, for example, might be the things we domesticated, like corn and cats and dogs and stuff like that. But in fact, our our fingerprint is on everything that's out there. Every decision that we've made has impacted the way things evolve. And if you think about what the what the environment, what the landscape is for species to be alive today, we see that what what things survive are the things that are best adapted, most fit in a human-dominated world. And we have changed things both for the good and for the worse, yes? Good and worse is all in the eyes of the beholder, right? I mean, what would you consider to be something that we've changed for the worse? Species, lineages, or, or really the, the habitat? I mean, we spit out a lot of pollution. We, we do a lot of things like that. So clearly, we've, we've changed some habitats for the worse. But the species that we've been manipulating and messing with, either you know, directly, intentionally, or unintentionally, are no better or worse than anything else. They're just the things that are alive today that are, that are best adapted to living in today's habitats. Yeah, well, I guess what I meant was things like pollution that we have caused, and it would be hard to look at pollution and say, well, that's a good thing we've done. <laughs> right, yes. We've changed We've changed the landscape in which everything lives. That's one of the reasons that I, I argue that there's really nothing that isn't impacted by us in some way. I mean, everything has to live today, and today's environments are, are weird, right? They're, they're different than the environments that existed 10,000 years ago. Although by then, we were already starting to exert our powers on the species around us to change them into things that did more efficiently what we wanted them to do. So talk about some of the ways specifically that we have changed. Well, so I think the first evidence that humans are manipulating nature comes from the fossil record. We see that as people expand out of Africa and start going around the world, um, species, in particular big species, start to go extinct. Now, we didn't intentionally drive these species to extinction, but our presence was impactful. Um, maybe we weren't hunting all of them, but we were certainly changing the landscape. Maybe we introduced fire or took down trees. We redistributed resources that became more available to some species and less available to others. And our impact was pretty strong. I mean, driving something extinct really changes the community of organisms and pushes everything in a different direction. The intention really strengthened then over time. We see by between 10 and 15,000 years ago that we've started to do things like domesticate cattle and pigs and goats and, and transform plant species. And certainly agriculture and domestication are ways that we're really transforming species. I mean, wolves, taking wolves and making domestic dogs, turning them eventually into things like chihuahuas and Great Danes. This is a very human-directed kind of change. And today, then, we, we shifted again well, starting, I'd say about 100 to 150 years ago, the successes of our ability to manipulate species to make things that fed more people allowed us to make more people and use up all of these natural spaces for things like cattle farming and agriculture. And we realized then that we had to change once again. And so we shifted from being herders and hunters and gatherers and, and farmers to being protectors. It's interesting if people, when people think about conservation, they often think this is leaving things alone. We're just going to step back and let nature recover. But we're also doing things like fencing off protected lands and vaccinating species so that they don't get sick and protecting them from predators. So the, what you just said, though, that there's this idea that if we were good conservators of the land and the species and the planet, we would leave it alone. And yet we can't leave it alone. And, and I'm not sure we want to leave it alone. That, yeah, but, but that there right. is this kind of negative view of, you know, if only humans would go away, then the planet would be so much better off. But, but I don't think that's true. I think if, if humans were to go away, the selective landscape in which things are alive would change, right? No longer would people have to adapt to 
our presence, they would still be adapting to the stuff that we did to the planet while we were around, right? I mean, there's still a lot more carbon in the atmosphere and we've got polluted oceans and waters and there's a lot of human land use changes that have happened that that have destroyed a lot of natural habitat and you know the the planet will change i mean ecosystems are never in stasis um it's one of the 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 things that people always think about restoration habitat restoration and the question i often ask is to what i mean at what point are we trying to restore things to to 500 years ago to 1000 years ago to 10000 years ago i mean everything is constantly shifting and if we were to suddenly disappear everything would shift again and the adaptive landscape in which things have to live would change but you know things are adapting to us now and will continue to adapt and change and you know i think you said earlier there um that there's this idea that we need to leave the planet alone in order for things to recover that i think this is in, in conservation there's really two two mindsets and one of them is that that we if we can just wall off half of the planet for example and just let that to nature then that would be okay and the other side on which i squarely fall says that it's too late for that. You know, we, we can't do that. There's no part of this planet that is outside of our reach. And if we really want things to have a fighting chance at survival, we have to get our hands even dirtier. We have to get in there and actually do more manipulation. Everything is in our control. As Stuart Brand said, we are as gods, so we may as well get good at it. I hear things like, you know, so many thousands of species on the planet disappear every year. And and there's always this kind of like, and it's our fault. Is it our fault? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is our fault. We know that the 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 extinction rate today is thousands of times higher than it is an average over the over the fossil record. So we are losing species at a rapid rate. You know, we've we've really taken over most of the planet's habitats. And one of the biggest challenges to species, which obviously, you know, evolution allows species to adapt, but if the rate of change is faster than those species can keep up, and that is what's going on right now, then we have this extinction crisis, this biodiversity loss crisis. And this is one of the reasons that the new technologies, which I argue in the book, this is the, we're at the precipice of transforming yet again, um, and now adopting these newer technologies technologies that we have at our disposal, including gene editing kind of technologies. These technologies allow us to help species to adapt at a pace that keeps up with the pace that we are changing habitats. And so this is really interesting, but but other than to observe it and say this is really interesting, why is this important? We are facing a time where we're really going to have to make a decision about what we want to do. You know, the IUCN working group met a few weeks ago to discuss whether or not we should consider as a global community using tools like gene editing and gene drives to try to protect species as a as a tool for conservation. The discussion isn't about whether we should immediately implement what we what we can do right now because it's clear that we're we're not we're not there yet. You know, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But we could, as a global community, decide that we're too scared of this technology to even allow ourselves to evaluate its potential, including the risks and how to mitigate risks. And we, I think that we cannot make that decision. We cannot sit here right now and say, you know what, this technology is too powerful and too scary. We're not even going to think about it because we're too scared about what could happen. If we don't give ourselves the freedom and flexibility to think about this from a global community's perspective, then we are going to deny ourselves what could be our only tool to help protect and preserve biodiversity into the future. If we want a world that is both biodiverse and full of humans, these are the technologies that are going to help us get there. We're not ready yet. It's too risky. We shouldn't jump into it right now, but we shouldn't deny ourselves the ability to evaluate what can be done. How do you, when you look at the, the debate about conservation and, and you know the environment and people wanting to cut this back or cut that back or, or you know make humans go away from this area or that... Do you think that those kind of artificial and, and rather so, sometimes extreme things are a good thing or a bad thing? Or, or why are we talking about it? Or how, how do you view it? Well, I, you know, we do have some really successful technologies for protecting biodiversity. We know, for example, that 
you know, going in and manually removing invasive species sometimes works, or we could introduce biological or chemical control agents, and that sometimes works. And obviously protecting habitats works to some extent. Um, but I really think that the, the technologies that we have right now while good and successful in some ways, are clearly not enough. You know, we, we've been doing this, we've been doing our best and getting our hands dirty in some cases and trying to leave things alone in other cases. Um, but we haven't really slowed the rate of biodiversity loss. And that's why I think it's really important that we are willing to consider these new technologies that just increase the tools that are at our disposal to help to stop the crisis of biodiversity loss. Well, it seems as if that you know that that there's two opposing views here, where where you're saying we what we need to do is move into the future with this new technology, but there's a lot of talk about let's go back to the way things were, that what we're that all this new technology in the world is screwing things up, and that we need to go backwards, not forwards. It's not possible to go backward. I mean, it, if we were to rewind you know, 20,000 years or 30,000 years before there were so many people on the world, we would be in the ice age and we're not in the ice age anymore. You know, the climate has changed, the planet's habitats have changed, and it's silly to imagine that we're just going to reverse time and go back to when there's only, you know, a a couple tens of thousands of people alive on the planet. You know, we have, there's, there's billions of us and there's going to be billions more. And we have to decide how we can create a world that is both biodiverse and filled with humans that are happy and healthy and have enough to eat. And if we're going to get there in an equitable way, we have to be willing to think about using and coming to rely on some of our new technologies. Going backward isn't an option. Well, I mean, backward in the sense that we don't uh, we don't allow cars here anymore, or that you know only pedestrians, or we 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 you know you know what I mean that that this idea that we can't just keep moving ahead, that we have to rethink our progress. Oh, I agree, and that we should certainly have pedestrianized areas, and we should change the cars so that they're not spitting out pollution, and we should change regulations so that we slow the rate at which we're degrading habitats. But it's too late to think that that is going to be sufficient for all these species to be able to adapt to what we've already done. Is there any sense, and I don't know if there's any way to figure it out, like if we weren't here, like how many species would have disappeared? Like it can't all be our fault, or or is it? <laughs> I think there's a real tendency to want to not blame ourselves, but it's it's clear and it's increasingly clear that the changes that are happening are because of us. And there is a way to know how many species might have gone extinct had it not been for us. We can look throughout the fossil record and ask what the average rate of species loss was. And when we do that, we see that today we're losing ten, um, thousands of times more species at a, high, at a rate that is thousands of times higher than the average in the fossil record. Yeah, there were these few massive extinction events that were caused by things like asteroids hitting the planet or massive volcanic eruptions. And now we're in an extinction event that's caused by us. You know, this is the anthropogenic extinction event. We've changed everything at such a pace that things are going extinct. It always, it always interests me that, you know, we, we, we destroy things we shouldn't, but, but, but we can't seem to get rid of the mosquito and, uh, you know, things that, that really, I mean, mosquitoes kill more people, I think, than pretty much anything. And, and yet yeah. we can't seem to do anything about that. But this is actually one of the places where these technologies, where research into these technologies is most active, is how we can we can manipulate mosquitoes so that they don't transmit disease. And there's been tons of work by lots of different groups, including a group called Target Malaria that's working mostly in, in Africa, where malaria is very common, to try to work with local stakeholders and, and scientists and community members to come up with ways that we can use new technologies to stop mosquitoes from spreading disease. So this is exactly an area where these technologies are being employed or hopefully being employed, or we're at least thinking about what the risks are and what the rewards are and how we can implement things in an equitable way that, that will help us, help us to be able to deal with these problems. When you look at this topic, when you, uh, you've done all this research, and is there something either on the horizon or that's starting or that we're doing that just floors you that's like this is so cool 
I find all of it pretty fabulous and amazing. I, I mean, the idea that we can, the, the gene drive technologies, which which basically spread a, a particular trait through a population faster than normal mating would allow this to spread, I think is really tremendous. As I mean, you've, you've talked about malaria or mosquitoes now, and so this is where my brain immediately went. Um, if we can make mosquitoes that can't transmit disease and that also can't the idea is that to make mosquitoes that can't reproduce and if they can't reproduce then the populations collapse and then you can't transmit disease and these mosquitoes are actually passing on this non-reproducing trait to other mosquitoes using crispr using gene editing tools that are that are designed to go to become part of their genomes and these traits are being designed in such a way that they last for maybe a dozen or so generations and then disappear so they're designed in a way that they don't have super long lasting influence, but hopefully influence that's sufficient for that population to collapse and the disease burden to get much less in the community where they're introduced. And the idea that we can design something like that, that is both extremely effective and simply disappears from the population after a number of generations so that we go back to whatever the first state was, was is, is to me really amazing. Well, when you stop and think about the changes that we've made to food and agriculture and and food is such you know i mean i was telling my son today i said enjoy your strawberry because you know when i was your age we didn't have strawberries in october much because <laughs> because they weren't in season you can have them all year round now you you don't understand how good you have it yeah, and it's not even that with strawberries. There's been a lot of genetic analysis and manipulation of strawberries to make them sweeter and bigger and taste better. And it's, I mean, it's really fabulous stuff we've been able to do with technology for our foods. Yes. I wish they could do something about tomatoes when it comes to tastier because supermarket tomatoes taste like cardboard. So I, it's I, true. I don't know why they can't <laughs> figure that out. Well, you know, this was one of the very first attempts for genetic modifying food. Have you heard of the flavor saver tomato? No. So this was a tomato that was engineered by a company in in California. And it, the, the point was, so the reason that supermarket tomatoes don't taste very good is because they're picked when they're green. So they can be shipped, stacked and shipped over long distances. And then they're, they're, they're exposed to ethylene gas, which causes them to ripen. They, they look red, but they don't get any of the flavor that they would if they had been able to ripen on the vine, right? So it's just for shipping, for ease of shipping and getting them out somewhere. So this company decided that what they wanted to do was create a tomato that would um, would ripen on the vine, but then stay hard. That that wouldn't that wouldn't get all soft and squishy, so that and start to rot right away. They figured out what gene was responsible for that, and they figured out a way to stop that gene from being expressed. And so they made these tomatoes that would ripen on the vine and then stay stay not rotten for long enough to get out onto the grocer's shelves. It didn't work because it turned out that the the trait did stop tomatoes from softening. Um, you know how you get a ripe tomato and you only have a little bit of time before it starts getting all yucky, right? Because it gets very soft. So that stopped, except they still were not hard enough to ship over long distances. So they were still soft, just as you when you pick them up at the grocery store. And you know, they they did a fantastic job with this. All of their all of their project was open and the public could learn about it. They could read about it. They went through the FDA approval process in the US, even though they didn't have to at the time. Um, so they went through this and they made all of their records open. When they released their flavor saver tomato, they proudly declared that it was a genetically modified food that was there and it was do and people were excited about it. But the company ended up going out of business because it took so long to get through this approval process that they didn't have to do, and because they didn't really know anything about manufacturing and shipping tomatoes, and they had that trouble with shipping soft tomatoes and then turning into juice rather than tomatoes. But they they went up ended up going out of business and that all the patents associated with that were sold to Monsanto at the time. Monsanto eventually bought the company. This was in the 80s. Yeah. The first genetically modified product was a was a tomato, the flavor saver tomato. It didn't make it. Yeah. Well, I wish <laughs> they'd try again because man, I like tomatoes. I and, and you know, I heard on the news, I don't know for sure, but I heard last week that there's a, a Japanese company, and I don't know the name of the company, but there's a Japanese company that's working on a genetically modified tomato. I know that there's a there's a research team at Cold Spring Harbor Lab in New York that Zach Lipman um, is running, and they make uh, they do sort of um, genetic modification of tomato plants to make new things. And they've made a a little tomato that can grow in rooftop gardens where the tomatoes grow like bunches of grapes rather than single big fruits. 
place. And so they're manipulating them so that they can be grown in, in weirder places. And so this is kind of cool. I don't know about the flavor. I haven't tasted one, but I, I'm happy to. Yeah. <laughs> I want to send one to me. <laughs> well, but it, it's all about the flavor. I mean, to, to, to grow tomatoes that don't taste very good, but they ship well, seems to miss the point to me. But, right. you know, right. that, but that's the way they are. Yeah, well, for now, maybe we can change it. Probably, because as you've pointed out, we've changed so many things about nature. And you don't think about it until you think about it and listen to you and realize how much we have changed nature, whether it's domesticating animals or, or changing tomatoes or protecting species and habitats. Beth Shapiro has been my guest. She is a biologist and author of the book, Life As We Made It, How 50,000 Years of Human Innovation Refined and Redefined Nature. And there's a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you, Beth. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Your cell phone is very handy, which is probably why you have it with you all the time. And there's something people should do with their cell phones that a lot of people don't do with their cell phones, that is very important. And that is to set up an ICE contact. ICE stands for In Case of Emergency. And rescue and medical workers do look for it. They can open your phone to see your emergency contact information, even if your phone is locked and you cannot speak. Now, iPhone and Android phones have different ways of doing it, but it's really worth the effort. To figure it out, you can put in who to call in an emergency. You can put in information about medications you take, medicines you're allergic to, and other health conditions you have. If something happens to you and you can't speak, having emergency information available on your phone for medical workers could save your life. There's an article from the Huffington Post which explains step-by-step how to do this on iPhones and Android phones, and I'll have a link to that article in the show notes for this episode. And that is something you should know. We rely on you to help us spread the word about this podcast. It's how we grow our audience. It is the best way, word-of-mouth advertising, and so I hope you'll help us out and tell someone you know, or two people you know, to listen to this podcast. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.